All right, with that, we are now in the book of James. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn to James chapter 1 with me. If you don't have a Bible, we'd be happy to let you borrow one so you can follow with us. Although I'm not, you know, we've been just kind of chipping away at this um, great letter that James has written. So we're looking at verses 9 through 11 this morning, three verses. I entitled our message, Our Wealth and Worth. And we're going to look at it through the lens of Scripture of what God has to say about our wealth and worth in James chapter 1. Everyone there? You guys good? All right. I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of God and His Word. I'll read aloud to you from my Bible so you can follow along in yours. James says, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. And then notice the contrast, but the rich in his humiliation. And then he has some added thoughts about the rich. He says, because as a flower of the field, he'll pass away. No sooner has the sun risen with burning heat than it withers the grass its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance, well, it perishes. And James just makes this metaphor, it's a simile, and says, so the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Three simple verses, we're going to park there and we'll pray, and then we'll unpack these verses. Lord, thank you so much for the morning. God, we're grateful for the sunshine we're grateful for the rain, too. We know that, as we prayed before, the farmers need it, the crops need it. It's how the fruits and vegetables and flowers and just water to drink and provides a, a cleansing of your creation, Lord. We're grateful for the rain. We're also grateful for the sun and uh, opportunities like today just to be outside and to enjoy your creation. Father, thank you for this day that you have made that we might rejoice and be glad in it. And Father, as we've uh, read these verses now, we pray that through your Spirit you would water our hearts, you would uh, illuminate uh, your Word to our minds. God, that we might see, that we might understand. And Lord, even as James would tell us later, that we might then do, apply these truths in our lives, that they be more than abstractions, there be more than just uh, words on a page, but God, these will be things that you would knit into um, the fabric of our heart, that they would manifest in our attitudes, our decisions, and the way that we live. And so we commit our time to you now. We pray and ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, would you take a moment and say hello to someone, and then you may have a seat. So when I was a much younger man, really before I came to know the Lord, I, one of my life's rules, if you can call it that, was I, I really try to avoid talking to anybody, especially friends and especially family, about, 
I didn't want to talk to them about money. I didn't want to talk to them about politics. And I didn't want to talk to them about religion. Those were kind of the three uh, general categories that I would try to avoid at all costs. Because I have found, and maybe you have too, that it's usually one of those things that can elicit some pretty strong opinions from people. And uh, often along with those strong opinions are strong emotions. And people can get pretty charged uh, in those particular areas. And so because of that, I, I just try to avoid them. And I thought, ah, just, uh, I'll just try to stick to less controversial topics like, is red M&Ms really that bad? Or if you sit too close to a screen, does it really hurt your eyes? You know, just more innocuous things. And even in my day, like the debate if Pokemon cards were evil, you know, if they're the devil or not, that kind of a thing. Like, let's just, let me just stay in these circles. Fast forward to today, and the, uh, the hot button issues of our day today, at least from my opinion, seem to be way more charged, uh, highly volatile, highly emotive, highly divisive. Uh, and there's a lot. Start to talk about vaccines or abortion, uh, censorship, and free speech issues. We talk about race and gender uh, identity and issues and these things. Uh, and, and typically, it has been in those those highly charged areas of debate and similar. There's more that often you find it's religion and it's politics and it's money that are also part and parcel to those conversations. They, they find their way in or they become a part of that. Now for me now, as I'm a follower of Christ, I've come to realize, oh, Scripture actually has a lot to say about those topics. <laughs> scripture has a lot to say about how I should view the world uh, and sometimes it's not direct. It's not as though we'll turn to a chapter and verse and find what, what does God have to say about wearing masks or vaccines and these things. However, uh, we certainly find plenty of truths. And along with those truths, we find timeless principles that regardless of culture, regardless of time, regardless of society, uh, they stay intact. They become foundational for us. And again, I think these, these are things we know, right? The view of culture, the value of culture, uh, it's constantly changing. It's in flux all the time. What one generation says is good and right, uh, later on another generation says no. And on and on it goes. You know, butter or margarine, right? Like that, I mean, there's all kinds of things. However, the Word of God does not change. The scriptures remain the same because God remains the same. And as we get to here now the book of James, we realize that James himself, he doesn't shy away from addressing some controversial things of his day, things that even apply for us in our day. And it's his book that we've talked about already, even though we're only at verse 9, that we realize provides for us some godly principles, some timeless truths for us, very practical too, by the way, of how we, well, how we should live. It's James that defines, if you say that you are a follower of Christ today, 
What should that look like? What does faith in Jesus look like in your everyday life? And James operates from the basis that he says that our faith needs to be more than just words. It needs to be more than just a profession of faith or confession of faith. There needs to be some action of faith. There needs to be some attitude of faith. That there should be an equal sign between what we say and what we do. And if we agree with that, if we agree that, yeah, there, there's, that's true, then it should come as to no surprise for us then that when we follow the Lord, when we live these things out, it's going to look radically different than what the world says and what the world does. Because society around us in its values and what it ascribes worth to, its priorities, its pathways, its pursuits, it stands in opposite, if you will. It's at odds to what God says your priorities should be, what our pathway should be, what our pursuits should be. They should look radically different. And James has brought us into this conversation. If you've been with us when we started, I mentioned to you that really what we're talking about is the gospel and how it changes everything. Or maybe I should qualify it, how it should change everything. It changes how we view the world. It changes how we view marriage and family. and It changes, as James brought us to, how we view our struggles, how we view hardships, how God wants us to look at when we feel like we want to give up and we feel like, man, life is just you know, sucker punching us. And to look at it through the lens of heaven and realize that, no, God has a plan in that. God has a purpose in that. We, we should, it should change then where and how we look to wisdom and where are we gleaning our insight from and to realize we can go to the Lord and ask for it. James now adds to this discussion and he says, listen, it, it also should impact how we view our wealth, how we view finances through the lens of faith. Now, gang, there's part of me that hasn't changed in that I don't like to talk about money still. Because now as a believer, what I've seen, and you have too, is that there's too many pastors and preachers, and by my observation, a lot who happen to be on TV, who have greatly abused and misused and mishandled the Scripture. They have taken advantage of God's people to a great degree, and no doubt it grieves God. And you know, when His name is used by church leaders as a means to make themselves rich, it has put a sour taste in my mouth. I imagine it puts a sour taste in your mouth, and as a result for me, I, I try to shy away from that. And yet I, I want to be faithful to Scripture. I realize that, surprisingly, Jesus actually had a lot to say about money. Actually talked more about finances than he did heaven. And so there's a lot to be said. The Bible has a lot to say about how we view 
finances through the lens of faith. And James, James is going to talk about this. I don't imagine vaccines or red M&Ms or censorship were a topic of James's day, controversy in his day. But we understand from his letter that wealth was how people viewed it, how they thought about the wealthy, how it influenced the way that they acted with people. Because he talks about it not just here, he's going to talk about it in chapter 2, he's going to talk about it in chapter 5 as well. And so, like today, it's still an issue, and we're going to see what James has to say about that. I draw your attention back to verse 9. He begins with, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. And then he makes the contrast, but the rich in his humiliation. And as I already read, or we read and made mention, he has an additional thoughts about that. It's in these three verses that we unpack today that James makes a contrast really just between two categories of people. It's the poor man or the poor person and the rich person. He has a little bit more to say to the rich person. And as I mentioned, this isn't the only time he's going to bring up this topic. It's here in chapter 1, though, that he says, let's consider how we view ourselves in light of this. Chapter 2 will be more how we view others. And if we're playing favorites with people that have money and people that don't and how we act and treat them. And then later on chapter 5, it's, it's kind of some heavy words for those who have a little extra where he's going to challenge them and how they then should treat people and how they then should view their own financial success. Um, but of course, it seems as though this was an issue. Now, history tells us generally that people in this, James's day were really either rich or they were poor. There wasn't really a, a large middle class like we uh, have today in most of our you know, uh, cultures. Granted, there's still places around the, the world where there's only two classes you go, and there's great disparity between the very poor and the very rich, and there's really not a middle class. But James speaks here to these two groups, the rich and the poor. He addresses them, though, interestingly. Notice how he addresses them. He says, let the lowly brother James is describing a, a fellow believer. He's talking to followers of Christ, and he describes them as lowly. Your Bible translation might say humble, or maybe if you have a, a different version, it may even say of the person of low degree. And that's a pretty decent translation. The original Greek word that's used there is lowly or humble. Uh, the original audience would understand it. It it wasn't a good word, if you will. It was a word that had a little bit of a sting to it. It was a word of disdain. It was a word of disregard. It's interesting that James uses that word. It was a word that described the lowest of uh, status, the lowest of rank, a person devoid of, of value. Today, we, we have similar terms. They're probably not as... That's the word I'm looking for. Probably not as bad as this word implies. You, know, you think about um, 
Lisa, my day, you know, if you're a freshman, um, they, you know, they just call you scrubs. At least that's what they called us. You're a scrub. Or for some of you, you know, the butter bars, right? Like, um, or like, oh, they're just a teenager or, or a, you know, a preteen or a between or, or in the video game world, my kids, oh, that guy's a noob, you know, like. It's not, okay, it's not probably the best term, but it's not like super bad. I'm like, hey, you better wash your mouth out with soap right now, that kind of a thing. But in James's day, this word, it, it was a little bit of a degrade. Uh, today, my kids would say, that, that's cringe. That's their term now. And so it describes this person that have no status, and they have no status because they have no money. They have no position because they have no possessions. That's the idea. But what I want to note with you is that the way that James characterizes this person isn't in a bad light. It kind of hijacks this word. And James doesn't say that being poor is bad. Nor does he say, notice with me, that they are lacking faith. As though to have not a lot of resources or, or not to have a lot of things wasn't, uh, at least in James's view, to be viewed as a bad thing. And yet in their society it was. And that had bled into the church. In fact, that still happens sometimes. I dare say that there's been a lot of damage and and harm caused by a perversion of the gospel that's often under the umbrella of what's called the prosperity gospel. Where you have churches and pastors and teachers who put forth what I believe is a false doctrine to say, if you really love God and if God really loved you, then you're going to be healthy and you're going to be wealthy. And I would submit to you that that's not biblical at all. And they operate in these circles of, oh, you have to have enough faith, you name it and you can claim it, or, or you blab it and you grab it. And a lot of damage has been done. And I would say that that teaching is a twist, it's a perversion of the gospel. It's not what the scripture teaches. And so James doesn't degrade uh, those that don't have a lot, and nor does he say that, you know what, you should try to seek to change your economic status. But what does he tell us? He says, listen, the lowly person, that person has the, uh, that low status because they don't have a lot of things, they can actually rejoice, they can glory in their exaltation and their being lifted up. Now, by itself, that statement is just a paradox. Let the lowly rejoice in their elevation, and then even the next verse, and let those who have a lot, the idea implication is glory in their humiliation. The bottom goes up, and the top goes down, and the result is the same. Here's what James is telling us in not so many words. God's kingdom doesn't operate like the world's kingdom. The value of God's kingdom and the values of God's kingdom look nothing like the world's kingdom. What the world esteems, what the world says, this is great, often God says, no, I don't think that's great. And often what the world would say you know, is junk or it devalues, God, God actually elevates. I mean, God loves to do that. He loves to take what the world would say is broken, or it's trash, or it's cringe. Like, get rid of it, throw it away, it's disposable. 
what the world would say, you need to discard that. God says, no, give that to me. And I'll take the broken and make it into something beautiful. I'll take your broken life. I'll take your broken marriage. I'll take your family that's dysfunctional. I'll take your your life and give it to me, and I will make it something glorious and beautiful, something to rejoice in. That's our God. That's what he loves to do. And the world counsel so often is you're, you're past the point of no return. Just get divorced. Just pursue these things. Just start over. Try this. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago when we gathered for Good Friday and how at one time the cross was a symbol in society of torture and pain, of humiliation. It was a Roman torture death device. No one gloried in the cross. No one's wearing it as a, as a necklace. You're not decorating your house with that. The modern day equivalent would be like you putting an electric chair you know, on, your, on your wall or wearing it as a necklace. People think you're weird. And yet because of what Christ did for us on that cross, we glory in that. We sing about it. God hijacked that thing, transformed it. And that's what he loves to do with our lives, with a person that's in a lowly position, with no power, no, uh, you know, seemingly no value. And God says, no, I, I love you, you're mine. And he elevates the lowly. And so much so the Bible even encourages us to take that posture. God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. The Bible says a a man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit God will lift up and obtain honor, Proverbs 29, 23. And so James presents to us something that we're already aware of, right? That that God's ways are not man's ways, and often they seem to be paradoxical. They seem to be upside down. Jesus says, It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. That's not the world's way. Give me, give me. Mine, mine. Jesus says, you want to be great? You want to be elevated? Then learn to be the servant of all. You want to be first? Then be last. It's a completely different paradigm for us as believers and followers of Christ. And James brings us into that. The humble the poor, the person that doesn't have a lot, guess what? You can rejoice. You can glory in your exaltation. Now, what does that mean to glory then in his exaltation? It doesn't mean to be boastful or prideful. It's not like, all right, hey, why don't you walk around poor and proud t-shirts? That's not the idea. The context of it is to... uh, is to have a joyful confidence to know that your station in life, that your worth, your value, isn't defined by the world's standards. See, society then, as society does today, often esteems the rich gives accolade and attention to the financially successful. The Forbes 500. 
CEOs and self-made millionaires and billionaires. They become celebrity. It's the wealthy that often have influence. It's the wealthy that often then find themselves with a platform and privilege and sadly operate on a whole different set of rules. And it's society around us, right? The world esteems that, glorifies that. And we tend to look up to people like Elon Musk and um, Jeff Bezos, or here in Japan, uh, Matayoshi Son, is the CEO of SoftBank, Japan's wealthiest billionaire. And yet in God's kingdom, a person's wealth, a person's worth, it is appraised by a completely different set of criteria. And so, gang, maybe it's just a reminder for us. Maybe it's not so much of an insight for you, but just a confirmation for you, a reminder for us, Christianity 101, to know that your worth, right, your true worth, it is not defined by the finances that you have or do not have. Your worth is defined by faith in Jesus Christ. That's how God defines you. It's us. If you're like me, though, it's us that falls into the trap to think somehow uh, my value is attached by the number of things that I own, whether I have a house or not, the type of car that I drive, uh, how many bedrooms I have, or uh, the shoes that I wear. It's us that often defines our life by these things. Your job title how big your paycheck is or maybe isn't. Although I love, I love living here in Japan and getting paid in yen because I just tell you, I got a six-figure income. It's all yen, but you know. But why do we do that? Because we adopt the world's values, that's why. We're tempted to define our life as the world defines lives. And so... <laughs> We then shouldn't be surprised, and when we begin to do that, what happens? It influences our pursuits. It influences our priorities. We fall into this trap of then acquiring and getting more and better and bigger and more stuff. (laughs) Sometimes we have so much stuff, we just need more garages, more storage, And sadly, that bleeds into the church, even where churches begin to then esteem themselves or value themselves in terms of the size of their building or in terms of material things. Stuff has a place. It just shouldn't be the priority of our pursuits. See, your worth and my worth, it, it comes from how God appraises you, not how the world appraises you. And how does God appraise you? You ever see those uh, TV shows? They used to be more popular maybe a couple years ago, like the, what's the one called? The Antique Roadshow, is that that one? You like that one, Michael? (laughs) That's my show. (laughs) Or those, uh, the the pawn shop ones, right, where people will bring stuff. It was kind of fun to watch, right? Sometimes people bring, they think they have something of value, right? They'll argue with the person. No, this is, like, no, I'll give you a dollar, you know. But what's fun often is when someone brings something and they really know what they have. Like, ah, this thing was laying around. I got it from grandma or I found it in the attic. And the person's like, oh, this is, you know, 
that thing's worth so much. And they're like, what? It's kind of fun. But what determines the worth of that? Like, who, who, who says so? Right? Well, worth often is just defined by what a person's willing to pay for it, essentially. And so, who defines our worth then? Well, God does. And then how does God appraise you? What was God willing to pay for you? Maybe we'll phrase it that way. So the Bible says that God so loved the world, God so loved you, that he loved you enough that he gave his son, sacrificed his son for you. That, that's how much you are worth to the Lord. If you've been in church with me for a while, you've heard me say before, kind of tongue-in-cheek, I, I love you guys. I'm blessed for our church. I feel like I have the greatest job on planet Earth. I got to teach uh, last week for a group of pastors at a church planting, and I introduced myself as pastor of the world's greatest church. But as much as I love you and I appreciate you, there's no way in the world I would sacrifice my kid for you. Right? I, but I'll see you in heaven. I love you, but well, I don't. Maybe on certain days, if you know. Anyways, <laughs> but yet you realize, like, that's how much the Lord loves you. I mean, that's how much God thinks of you. The Bible even says, "While we're yet sinners, while we're unworthy, unlovable, we don't want anything to do with God." I don't think we fathom the enormity of that, the re- the reality of that statement. Yet, that's your worth. And so we have then to resist, if you will. We have to jettison away when the world wants to define us by its standards. You are worthy because God says you're worthy. He gave his son for you. And nobody has the right then to say to you, you are unworthy, that you have no value. And can I say this in love? You don't even have the right to say of yourself, I'm unworthy. We, we have to resist. Do, do not define the value of your life by the world standards. And certainly do not define it by things. The lack of things or the abundance of things. In fact, that's what Jesus tells us. In Luke chapter 12, verse 15, he says, Hey, guard your heart, especially against greed and the pursuit of things, because your life isn't defined by the abundance of stuff. How many of us seek to define our life by the abundance of stuff? I'm convicted. (laughs) I'm guilty. It's a trap. That's why often scriptures talk about the deceitfulness of riches. And the deceitfulness is that it will it will give us identity, it will give us contentment, it will provide happiness. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know that it doesn't. Because that new thing that made you happy in that moment, you're not happy anymore. You've got to go get the next new thing, the next better thing, the next upgrade. Listen, the lowly person can re- rejoice Because the perspective is we have something of greater value 
than any earthly trinket or treasure. That's why a person that doesn't have a lot can celebrate and rejoice. Their life isn't defined by things. Their value and worth isn't defined by things. Now, how does this all connect back to trials and wisdom? Well, it's a perspective. When we understand that our worth and our wealth isn't tied to earthly numbers, that's not really what makes us rich. The fact that we have spiritual riches. See, that becomes then an aid to allow us to persevere through trials. To realize we have something greater than just You know, sometimes we think, if I just had enough money, then my problem will go away. And sometimes that's our solution, right? We just throw money at something. And yet God tells us, I'm going to give you a spiritual ATM card. You're my kid. And here's access to my bank account of heaven. And anything that you need, and any time that you need, there's no withdrawal limit. We, we talked about back in verse 5, without reproach, any time, all the time, for any need, you can come and keep coming and keep coming. Ephesians chapter 1 reminds us of the riches that you and I have in Christ Jesus. And so often, though, if you're like me, I, I turn quickly to the credit card, or I turn quickly to my own devices, and my own wisdom. And so to realize, oh, I I may not have a lot earthly speaking, but I am rich heavenly speaking. And all that I need, God says he'll provide. And so James begins then with that person, says, listen, you, you can have a perspective of what you really have and and, and celebrate, rejoice in that. And then the converse of that, the opposite, he says, but the rich person, the implication is, you can also glory, but guess what? You glory in your humiliation. Now notice with me, James doesn't call this person brother, the lowly brother and the rich brother. And because of that, there are some who, say, who think, oh, he's not talking about the believer then. He's making a contrast between a, a humble believer and a wealthy unbeliever. Maybe. At least for today, for me, I disagree. I think James is addressing both believers in both circumstances. The rich believer, the poor believer. He just happens to address those with a lot that their source of glory isn't the same as the person that doesn't have a lot. But the lens is the same. It's still the perspective of faith. It's still the power of the gospel. It it just manifests differently to the person that doesn't have a lot. We can look at it through the eyes of faith and realize, oh, I have a lot because I belong to the Lord. And the currency of my faith isn't defined just by the currency of the world. And for the person who does have a lot, and by the way, arguably, that's all of us compared to the world standards, right? If you have 100 yen in your pocket or in a bank account, we're the rich. If you turned on your water today and it came out clean and you can have hot water, 
and you had to decide on what clothes you're going to wear or even what shoes you're going to put on, we are rich compared to the rest of the world. It's the lens of the gospel that allows us to look at that and say, okay, well, I shouldn't exalt, I shouldn't be prideful, I shouldn't get heady just because I have stuff. In fact, I should be humbled knowing that I, I can't rely on that. That's the idea. And let the rich then, in his humiliation, the realization that his stuff at the end affords him really nothing, because the Bible says in the end, it's all going to burn, baby. My paraphrase of Peter. It's all going to burn. And so what happens really is it's the same status in the Lord when we come to the cross, whether you have a lot, earthly speaking, or if you don't have a lot, earthly speaking, you're the same. And James tells the person with a lot, you can humbly rejoice at the revelation that God doesn't want you to trust in your wealth. Because he's going to go on to say, it's all going to fade away. And notice with me, just like James didn't rebuke or downgrade the poor, he doesn't necessarily rebuke or chastise the rich. Like wealth in itself isn't necessarily a bad thing. It in itself isn't an evil thing. It's not the problem. The problem is when we make it an idol, right? The problem is the love of money. When it influences then our worship and our pursuits and our passions, that's when it becomes a problem. If God has blessed you with a lot of things, be blessed. But realize that God has entrusted you with a stewardship that you then would take those earthly blessings and invest in the kingdom of God to make an internal impact with temporary things. But the Bible is very clear. There's a lot of snares, though, that come with wealth. One of them is to think we're good. Life's good. It's like the guy that had a lot of stuff. He says, I'm going to just build bigger barns. My life's going to be good. And Jesus says, you're a fool. The problem is when, our, uh, when we become attached to stuff, our possessions begin to possess us. Remember the account with the, it's in, uh, it's in several Gospels, I think in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus encounters this guy, and he's just called the rich young ruler. Which just by that title, there's a lot going for this guy. He's a young guy, he's a ruler, so he has some influence, some position, some rank, and he's rich. So he's got a lot of stuff. He's got a lot of dinero. He's okanimochi. And he has a desire for spiritual things. And he comes to the Lord and he says, hey, my paraphrase, I, I want in. <laughs> and Jesus says, okay, here's what you should do. Why don't you take all your stuff, go sell it, my paraphrase, on Oki Yard Sales. And whatever money you make, give it to the poor. And you can come follow me. You guys know what happens to that guy? I mean, to, again, be um, disrespectful to Scripture or anything, but 
that poor vato, what happened to that guy? It says he left grieved. Why? Because he had a lot of stuff. And the idea is that he didn't want to get rid of it. He's in love with his things. And that's a danger for all of us. Getting attached to things. And several years ago, when uh, we were, many years ago now, more than 20, when we were going to move from California to come here. Oh, sorry, you mean this on my notes for our translator. We, at that time, it was just Rebecca and Noah, just the two kids, and me and Christy, and so we had to get rid of all of our stuff. We kept very few things, so we just had many yard sales and just got rid of our stuff. And I remember kind of having a grieving process, right? Like, oh, these are my things. And, and, and I remember even one interaction uh, where I had, I hope I don't stumble anybody, but I'd gotten all the Bruce Lee movies. And, I, and I, you know, back then it was VHS, the VHS collection. At this store called Suncoast Video. Anybody remember that place? Yeah. I spent like all my paycheck just on, you know, Bruce Lee videos. And we're gonna sell it. I spent a lot of money. And this old guy came and I'm haggling with him and and then I, I ended up selling it for five dollars. I'm like, oh senior, my corazon right here. That's my heart, you know, and <laughs> you get attached to stuff. I still grieve over my Bruce Lee VHS. <laughs> and people, we, we, we can pursue things. And sometimes that just becomes an end in itself. Jesus gives us the greatest investment advice ever. He tells us where we should... Uh, you want an inside stock tip? Here's what Jesus says in Matthew. He says, do not store up treasures here on earth. And he explains why, right? Because they're, they're fleeting. Where moth, rust, vermin destroy. The Okinawa version is mildew, where mildew gets to. Where thieves break in, they steal your car from the gym. He says, but store up yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust and mildew they can't get to, and thieves can't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. It's when we come to realize our spiritual wealth and our spiritual worth, it is a far greater value than what this world gives to us. And it's permanent. Because everything around us and what we have, it is perishable. It's perishable. And sometimes we, we have the wrong priority. And so it's scripture that reminds us, invest in the bank of heaven. <laughs> invest in spiritual stock that will pay back great dividends for you. And that's really James' point. The rich, the person with a the lot, they can rejoice to realize God's shown them that they shouldn't trust in their riches and he explains why. Because it's all going to go away. And he gives this illustration of flowers, just like the flower that fades. And then he talks about how, uh, you know, when the rain comes and there's this grass in the field, and all of a sudden here comes the sun, and it burns it all up, and then guess what? It's all gone. He says, and so the rich man in all his pursuits. 
Now that example is true for all of us, whether you're rich or poor. The idea, the, 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 the sobering reminder that life is short. <laughs> life is short. And that's what James is essentially saying. He's saying life is short. He's going to say it again later on in chapter 4. He's going to say, don't you know that your life is like a vapor? It's like the morning mist that it's there, but by the afternoon it's gone. And sometimes we're reminded of that in a more sobering ways. We have friends and family, right? People who cancer or an accident and all of a sudden that, you know, they're here one day and they're not here the next day. And we're reminded of that reality that life is a gift known as promised tomorrow. And so by implication, really what James leads us to then is what then should we be investing in? What should we be making our life about then? If, if life is a gift and it's fleeting and we're not promised tomorrow, then what are we doing with it? And it's a very vivid picture that he provides that the people in Israel, they understand because in that region, it's very, it's very dry, you guys know. And there are times where they get rain. And when it rains, this, this uh, wispy grass grows up pretty quick. But then all of a sudden, here comes the sun and the sun's pretty brutal there. And then the grass gets dried, and there's this dry wind that comes through um, seasonally. It actually has a name. It's called the Simum. Anybody ever live in Southern Cal? The Santa Ana's or uh, El Nino, right? It's Spanish for the Nino. Thanks. Sorry. What is James telling us? It's a picture of a life that's dependent upon earthly riches, and it's a foolish thing. The person who puts their trust in material wealth, in trusting those things, it can be snatched away, lost at any moment. See, it's wisdom then us, to have this perspective, and then to know, okay, what should be our pursuit? Paul tells young Timothy, Timothy, I want you to tell the people in church who have a lot of money, address the rich, and gang, arguably, that, that could be us. And here's what Timothy, or Paul tells Timothy, tell them not to be conceited. And, and not to put their hope in the uncertainty and the deceitfulness of riches, but rather to rely fully upon God, who richly supplies all things for us to enjoy. I think sometimes we read or hear these terms and we think about the Elon Musks and the Jeff Bezos and the Matsuyoshi sons but I dare say the application is for us. You have a TV, you have a gadget. This morning you had clothes in your closet that you tried to decide what to wear along with your shoes. Um, James 1, 9 through 11 is for all of us. All right, we, we, we can glory in the fact that God allows us to see the vanity and the the. What's the word I'm looking for? The fr frailty 
of just the things of this world. The, the temperance of it. The fleeting of it. That we, we can glory in the fact that God allows us to see that the, the essence then of our true worth and value is not defined by those things, but it's defined by the fact that, that God loves you. That you have a spiritual ATM card. That we have riches in Christ Jesus that are of greater value than what the world offers. Jeremiah says, not, don't let the wise man glory in his wisdom. Don't let the, the mighty man boast of his strength. Don't, don't let the rich person glory in their riches. But you want to boast? You want to be content? You want to be uh, excited about something? Be excited that you know God. See, we, we can glory in the fact that we know the Lord and that we have an internal inheritance that will never fade away. Rust and moth and mold and no thief at 5 o'clock in the morning will take away from you. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. These three little verses that are just full of its own version of riches. The, the richness of your truth, the richness of your grace, the richness, Lord, of perspective of how much you love us. God, sometimes we can think so much lower of ourselves than even you think. And then we try to make up for that void by, by performance, by acquisition, by getting more things as though that, that's going to make us more important or, or happier. Lord, forgive us for, for falling into that trap in that pursuit. Lord, later on we're going to be encouraged to know that contentment in you is great gain. That it's not the world's goods that make us godly. It's not the world's wealth that provides our worth. Lord, help us to, to pursue the things of you. Lord, help us, those who to have that have a little extra, Lord, that we might be obedient to what you want us to do with what you've provided to invest in the kingdom of God, to make deposits in the bank of heaven, to store our treasures there with the promise of a great return. Lord, we thank you that your ways are not the world's ways. And God, if we need to course correct today, I pray you'd help us to be obedient to that. We love you and we praise you and we thank you for your grace and goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, church.